This is episode 219 of That Shakespeare Life. Our show is made available free and without any commercials, thanks to support from listeners just like you who sign up to be our patron. To say thank you for supporting our show and helping us continue the legacy of William Shakespeare, our patrons get access to exclusive content, including detailed show notes that coordinate with our show. Explore all the benefits and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Hey! It's me, Cassidy. I know Gary's already done the editing on the show for today, but I just had to jump in here to interrupt the program because I have a special announcement. Starting July 6th, I'm going to be starting my Zero to Podcasting Mastermind Group. It's a one-year training-intensive program where I will work with historians and humanities professionals that want to start their own successful podcast. I'll be walking them through step-by-step how to go from absolutely nothing but a desire to podcast all the way to successful business podcast platform that lets your passion for history work for you. I know this training program works because it's the exact step-by-step method I use to launch that Shakespeare life. And it's the same method that's already worked for other students of mine who started out as listeners just like you. If you're sitting there wishing you had a successful podcast of your own, then come join us this year and let me show you how to make that dream a reality. Now, I'm only taking a handful of people because to work with you in this highly one-on-one personalized way, we're keeping the group super, super small in focus so that I can focus on making sure you get the results that you want. If you want to be in on my exclusive mastermind group and finally start that podcast you've been thinking about, then apply right now at CassidyCash.com slash mastermind. Mastermind is all one word. So that's CassidyCash.com slash mastermind. The deadline to get that application in is coming up fast. It's June 30th and we won't be accepting applications after that date. So go ahead and apply right now. I hope I will see you inside. Okay, Gary, take them back to the show. There's a concept out there that women were banned or regulated in some fashion, and the word ban you hear around. So the first thing that I think you have to establish that there were no written rules, nothing has ever been found in terms of a written statute, regulation, law, even a guild, something put into a guild document about women playing banning them or excluding them or even permitting them, which is a different facet, right? Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. One of the most accepted statements you're liable to find about Elizabethan theater online today is that playing companies were all male companies. The idea of a woman on stage is considered forbidden or not allowed. However, our guest today, Pamela Brown, has recently published a book called The Diva's Gift to the Shakespearean Stage, where she presents evidence that women did participate in performances on stage during Shakespeare's lifetime. Her work challenges what I know I thought I knew about Shakespeare's theater, and I'm delighted to have her here today to help clarify the this part of Shakespeare's history for you, too. I'm delighted to welcome Pamela Allen Brown to the show today. 
Pamela Allen Brown is professor of English at University of Connecticut. Her new book, The Diva's Gift to the Shakespearean Stage, has just been published by Oxford University Press. With Julie Campbell and Eric Nicholson, she edited and translated Isabella Andrini's Fragmenti di Alcuna Scritture, excuse my Italian there. The English translation is Lover's Debates for the Stage. This book is forthcoming in 2022 from The Other Voice in Early Modern Europe. Her other publications include Better a Shrew Than a Sheep, as well as As You Like It, Texts and Contexts, and Women Players in England from 1560 to 1650. She's a founding member of Theater Without Borders, a working group of scholars of early modern drama and performance. I'll put links to Pamela's work as well as her website in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Pam. Welcome to the show. So delighted to have you here today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Glad to talk about my book and other topics with you. Sure. In chapter four of her book, The Diva's Gift to the Shakespearean Stage, Pamela points out that, quote, the English professionals excluded women until 1660, but they did not banish male fears about women who dare to act, end quote. Pamela, for some listeners, this statement may sound like a contradiction. When you say women were excluded from acting on the professional stage, does that mean that there weren't any women actors in Shakespeare's lifetime? Well, in a word, no. Women performed in many ways in Shakespeare's time and at all levels that I can think of in terms of social levels from the street corner to the court. So the assumption of exclusion has been refuted now by many scholars, not just myself, over years of research. And the only place you did not find women was the professional London stage. Even there, we have a few tantalizing traces. So that's my brief answer, short answer. Now, is there a difference in what the rules were surrounding who was allowed to perform that varied based on location? For example, when you talk about the professional stage, would women have been excluded from that venue specifically while being welcomed in other formats? I think you alluded to that in your first answer, that that women were performing in different places. But explain for us where, where would we have found them and what would they have been doing if they weren't actors at the Globe, for example? Right, right. I think that there's a concept out there that women were banned or regulated in some fashion, and the word ban you hear around. So the first thing that I think you have to establish that there were no written rules, nothing has ever been found in terms of a written statute, regulation, law, even a guild, something put into a guild document about women playing banning them or excluding them or even permitting them, which is a different facet, right? So when, you know, the idea that, and then if you go out into into the world beyond the professional stage, we still find that opposite to what we might, we might predict, women are appearing in all of these places by custom. It's tradition, custom, and certainly at court, it is highly accepted for women from Elizabeth, Anna, Henrietta Maria, all of them leading highly theatrical courts where women did perform aristocrats. So if you go outside and we think about London, we think about uh, things like parish drama. We think about civic pageants, women performed in them, and there are records of them performing. So it's not so, and, and also there are, are acrobats, entertainers, rope dancers. Claire McManus has done work on this. Other people have. 
in which there were street entertainers. And this is too is theater. I mean, it depends on what you you call theater is not just scripted plays, right? So your general, the way that you painted it, that the that it was the professional companies only that it excluded women and that other levels were welcoming. I think welcoming may be a little positive, but it certainly was traditional accepted common practice. I think that's important to note. Custom and tradition, there were lots of women out there. So this makes, you know, if you go to the highest and lowest echelons is the, the famous mass by Queen Anne and her ladies at the court, Ben Johnson and Inigo Jones is just Stuart Mass, right? But they did not speak. That's something to, to realize that this was considered lowly labor for lowly actors. And so any spoken lines by women would be played by boys from the professional com- companies or young men. But they were not the only women who performed for elite courtly audiences. We have foreign troops foreign actresses, which is my focus. There were women from Italy who came to Elizabeth's court, who came later to James and Anna's court, but they also played for the public in the 1570s. So we have both arenas, public and courtly, with foreign women playing. So just as a point of clarification, when women were performing in some of these street venues and other performance areas that you mentioned, were they also non-speaking roles or was it only women in the court masks that didn't do speaking roles? There were speeches, let's say the May Queen, the May Queen, let's go out to the countryside. May Queens would have speaking roles. Paris drama, there were speaking roles. There were country house dramatics in which women took speaking roles. So it is really the professionals who make this feature their theater, the boy actor, the female impersonator, as I think a distinctive offering that shows that they were somewhat elevated above the popular run. So we have these, the queens on top, but that's very different. The mask with silent masking, dancing from the very lively oral world of popular culture with women in in it and the street entertainers. In her book, Pamela cites the English playwright John Marston's play, History of Mastics from 1599, in which a character advises the English theater to include more women in order to raise their performance to the level of Italian performances, a country where women are welcome and prolific in theater performance during this same period. Pamela, did these Italian playing companies, including their women players, ever visit England to perform plays before Queen Elizabeth? Yes, indeed. That's part of my sort of chapter one of my book, when which I developed throughout my book. By the time Marston wrote that play, you know, which was 1590s, it's dated 1590. It apparently could be any time in the 1590s that play, given a date of 1599. But by then, and Shakespeare's of course writing by the 1590s, the uptake of Italian mixed, mixed gender theater was really in full swing. Two large troops of Italian men and women, Italian actors and actresses, had visited England, and at least two, um, that's the ones we know about, to play for Elizabeth. And of course, we all know that I would call Elizabeth the most thoroughly diva-like queen, and she was also very telephilic, highly competitive with foreign queens, such as Catherine de' Medici, but she was competitive with the French royals and with the Italian dukes and duchesses who patronized the Italian players who had become very famous. So she made her desires known that she wanted to see Italian players. And in 1574, a troupe with actresses crossed the channel and performed pastorals and comedies for her in On Her Summer Progress, followed her in her summer progress. 
This was lucrative. Yet uh, the second major troop came in 1577, 78, stayed eight months in that period. They played a variety of offerings um, in the city and the liberties. They had a license that permitted them to play, it said, in the city and the liberties, which is very interesting, as well as at court. When they played at court, they displaced English players, English companies of children and adults. So later on in 1602 and 1610, two more troops came and there's documents of that. And they all had skilled actresses who played the enamorata, the leading, the woman in love, the, the refined young woman in love, sometimes not so young, but still they were. This, I think, is, is my central thesis. This has an enormous impact on English playwrights. These was all supplemented by reports coming back from the continent, by travelers, by diplomats, by actors who toured, English actors, about seeing the Italians and their actresses. So what happened was envy, I think, a little fear, rivalry, imitation and adaptation, many reactions. But the overall impact to me is clear that there were Italian plots and playing methods with stellar female characters began to appear in the 1580s in plays set in Italy or the Mediterranean. And so you think of Lily, John, the, the trendsetters, the, the, the best playwrights, John Lily, the ones who are imitated, Lily, Marlowe and Kidd. They wrote pastorals, tragedies, and comedies in the style of the mixed-gender Italian troops. And this is something that I think is not known generally about the Italian Commedia dell'arte. Despite their name, they were not only commedia. They were like, as Polonius says, these troops that could play any genre and mix all genres. So that's important to know that they played tragic comedy and tragedy as well. And women were a huge novelty that permitted this extreme generic variety that was admired. At one point, the arte had been all male. In other words, l'arte was pantalone, capitano, datore. And if any women's roles were played by men in mass, when the unmasked actress came, it had a radical impact on their repertory that you could see much more emotion. They, the lovers developed, uh, they developed an amarato who played with her, but the women became stars much more quickly and drew crowds. They were novelties. The arte completely transformed its repertory to showcase these women and their talents. And then we go back to Marston and what you brought up from History of Mastics. I'm glad you chose that from the book. It's very interesting because he's saying that the English had to play catch up. In other words, that there was anxiety that our, our theater is just not good enough. The play is about these vulgar very vulgatoring actors. And the Italian who comes to see them says, aren't your curious dames of sharper spirit? I have a mistress who can write plays, who can play in plays, who can devise them. So in other words, women, actresses were creative forces to be reckoned with. And I think we see roles like Bellimperia, Galatea, Beatrice, Portia, Viola, Cleopatra. We see this new diva type extending her influence over the English stage. You know, I just want to sort of sum up that there was a powerful influence of Elizabeth's patronage and interest in Italian acting and theater. And the Italians' growing fame known in England had unforeseen consequences. And then audiences at court and popular audiences were demanding Italian comedies, exotic eroticism, and moving tales of passion. And these had to have more women roles. Um, before the Italians came, half of all English plays had no women, zero, right? Half of them, half of the plays, no women at all. After that, it rises sharply. Shakespeare came into a 
theater world that was supplying this demand already. And I think you see it, especially in plays like Twelfth Night Merchant, Romeo and Juliet. So I'll just stop there because I could go on forever about that. And I know <laughs> you have other questions. Um, well, during Shakespeare's lifetime, I think I want to make this this clear because we know that women were performing in in various venues. And and obviously you mentioned that there were women performing at court, but they were specifically not performing at places like the Globe or the Curtain Theater or later at, at the cockpit and places like this. They weren't performing in those places because there was a separation between amateurs and professionals. But then you're drawing a very strong contrast between what's happening in, in Italy. The professionals are women. And, and even in you know some cases, the women are, are the draw. That's why people are coming to see the performances at all. So I wonder where England's place was in the context of European countries at this time. Were, was England unique in defining professional theater as not as all male? By 1600, everyone in those countries I named, and Spain is is even earlier instance of actresses and women playing all during the 16th century from even earlier than the Italians, but they didn't travel. My point is that the Italian troops traveled and spread this new practice to countries, including England. Okay, But the Spanish had actresses quite early on and affected their theater. But as far as being an anomaly, yes, England was anomalous. And this is just this is sort of a matter of debate in my field. There was all male playing in the Netherlands, for example. It It seems quite related to religious belief. And here we have two Protestant states. The Protestant ethos, especially the more radical, what we say, Puritans, were really against theaters. I mean, we know about the closing of theaters, right? The attacks on theaters, but even more so against the actress that that was considered to be whorish, not just like prostitution, but prostitution itself. We might think about, I don't know, a sex show or a theater. Like there could be no woman on stage showing herself to the public without it and being paid for it without that being like a prostitute, like poorish taking of money for sexual display. And that's how the Netherlands treated it as well. You could be an amateur in the Netherlands. It's very interesting, but you couldn't take money for acting. That was really the concept that the entire country was fully against actresses. I real, I don't agree with that either, but I do think that had a, a bearing on what happened and what developed because the basically because the playing companies wanted to stay all male. It was their routine. It was their, it was not their routine. It was their tradition and it was how the entire business was formed. And then they made it into a feature, as I say, not a defect. They tried to stress the professionalism, the beauty, the stardom of their boys, of their actors, and that this was um, elevating it ab- above the whorish, the, the, the vulgar of uh, continental actresses who played, but also uh, the street players and the parish drama and the country kind of of performances, they were in contrast to that, and they offered something different and more elite. So I want to touch on this idea of of women in theater, because I know it's a, it's a general assumption that people often make about the early modern period and about Shakespeare's lifetime that that women were not uh, allowed to be a part of this. But then we also have records of things like Elizabeth I was patron of the Queen's men. And then later, Queen Anne's men was under Queen Anne, the wife of James I. And as, as you mentioned earlier, Queen Anne did perform herself in court masks. And so I think there's this conflict of, you know, why was it considered 
whorish or or like the woman was degrading herself to participate in theater. But then we see these very high ranking, well-respected, certainly not compromising their reputation, women performing in and being patrons of major theater companies in the country. How do these two realities work together in our understanding of, of what the relationship of women to theater was for Shakespeare's lifetime? A few English women did own playhouse inns. I mean, places where they 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 had, were successful theaters, and and it was Cross Keys, Bell Savage, and the Bull. So we have this phenomenon of women actually being part of the business. Natasha Court has done great work on female financing, women financing theater as well. But this is actual ownership of theater, which I think is quite interesting. And then there's the, the, the case of Margaret Brain, a very famous case who was a, a, who through her husband inherited property in the, the theater, um, the Burbage is the, the theater, the first the first theater that opened commercially in London in 1576. And she inherited from it, but she was barred. She, they were, there was a huge, long wrangling litigation over her ownership. Going back to your question about this contrast of someone like Elizabeth, Anna, Henrietta Maria, it's the privilege of the queen. I mean, there's a lot of work now being done on the internationalism of queenly culture. Okay. Of course, Elizabeth is queen and king. She calls herself, right, both. She calls herself a prince. Um, she takes on this dual gendered role. Anna has her own court. And so, and also her, I mean, there's this sort of separation between James and Anna. And she leads a, a she is the leader of the theatrical activities, she initiates them, she produces, she gets Johnson and Jones to do certain of the masks, she gets ideas for them, she wants a mask of blackness. I think it's it's a very different thing to be a royal, have that power. It doesn't mean it wasn't controversial and they weren't criticized for this, right? All queens, especially foreign queens, ones who were brought in like Anna and Henry Reda Maria from other nations, Catholic nations especially. This wasn't the case with Elizabeth, but with the other two, they are suspected. They are satirized. They are, you know, it's not true that they're that they're just apart from all criticism. In fact, they are criticized for their theatricality and for their difference and for being, you know, the question of Anna's Catholicism was a constant thorn in the side and, and had much political repercussions. But with Henrietta Maria, even more so. Henrietta Maria took it a step further. She did speaking roles. She spoke. She even played a man. She played a man in a beard. She, you know, she, uh, William Prynne criticized her as a whore for being an actress and lost his nose and ears. So I think it shows that even the people at the, at the pinnacle of power for women, there was always a discomfort with the idea of a woman speaking in public and controlling dramatic representation. Where I think it is much more accepted is in the traditional common culture of the street, the parish, that then it is there's there's not a lot of criticism of it, right? That this is this is part of everyday life and that's different. And it goes has deep roots in medieval culture, which continues into the 16th century. So I want to just set the record straight here because something that comes up a lot and is a point of confusion is whether or not women would have been arrested or punished for trying to perform in a theater. 
No, as long as you expand the idea of women playing and performing to go beyond the professional stage. And so Malfrith appeared on the fortune stage in 1611. Okay. Later on, she was charged with immorality for her in-your-face blatant actions because at the end of her end of her spiel, she was she was joking with the audience and and said, you know, if you if you're not sure if I'm a woman or not, because I'm dressed as a man, then come home with me and I can show you that I am I'm a woman, right? So it was the, they said it was the lewdness and immorality of her actions. Now, so that they also didn't cite any rule or law against her performing on stage. I would look at things like Thomas Coriat, who said that he has heard that women have played in London on the stage. When he goes to Venice and he sees women act, he said, I've heard this has been used in London. And there are other little, a few little instances in in documents about, for example, I've heard that there was a play set all, set all out by all by one virgin in London, not specifying that it was the curtain or the globe or any particular play stage, but that this was not certainly not for women who performed necessarily the loss of all status and you're a whore and get out of here. I think there was a program directed to the women who were foreigners who played in London at the street level, so familiar and acceptable that people in, let's say, that were not traveling gypsies or fortune tellers or mountebanks, but people who were uh, established as parts of communities, farm wives, alewives, could, and their families and their daughters could participate in common culture of performance and play speaking roles without any direct criticism at all, acceptance, because this was part of common culture and traditional. I know we would love to explore this topic further. And of course, checking out Pam's book, both this latest one, as well as several of her others, is a great place to begin. But Pam, I wonder if you could recommend for us, what are some of your favorite books or resources we should start with when we want to learn more? Well, you know, think about how I got into this field and it was for people like James Stokes, who was a read, an editor at the Records of Early English Drama Project. I don't know if you've had people from them on here, but but Jim Stokes has, has always been a leader for us in this field for English context. So there's there's Jim Stokes. He's written several articles, all of them worth, and I, and I cite one on, online, uh, I think, in, in the bibliography. Then there's, uh, and he's done really the, the research showing how many women did perform and how it was, it was uh, common, not an exception. Then there's Rosalind Kerr. I love her book, The Rise of the Diva in the 16th Century Commendal Arte, and how they marketed themselves and how they traveled. I'm in a group called Theater Without Borders, and I just have to say that they were crucial to my being able to do the book and to cross cross from Italy into England in sort of mentally and in my archives. And that's people like Eric Nicholson, Richard Andrews, and and Emma Kotritsky. And finally, there's this. Well, there's also Sophie Tomlinson's book on the Caroline stage and women writers and the threat of the actress and how it's it's shown in plays. And Claire McManus, above all, and she's written brilliantly on the top levels on the bottom. I mean, everything I said about Queens and those acrobats, that's Claire. And she's in a a project called Engendering the Stage. And if you look there online for Engendering Stage, you'll see the wonderful work they're doing there. So I guess that's it. 
those are excellent resources. And we will absolutely link to Engendering the Stage as well as all of these books, as well as Pam's books in the show notes for today's episode. So you'll know exactly where to find those and how to dive into all of these resources. Thank you so much, Pam, for mentioning those. And now we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, I don't know. You've hit a contrarian because I'd reject Shakespeare in the Bible because I want space for other books. And, and, and so anyway, I would say I would have, therefore, three spaces, and I'd bring collected works by James Baldwin, James Joyce, and Octavia Butler. So I'm already reading Octavia Butler, and I want to continue her Earthseed series. James Baldwin, I would love to read more than his plays, and I've only read one novel. I want to read all of them, so I want to select big collected works. And Joyce, I would miss the city. I'm a, I'm a Brooklyn, New York girl. I would really miss the city on a desert island, so I would want to be in his Dublin and all the, all the cities that he creates and his music box of voices. I'm also a writer. I write poetry. I write essays. So I, pro- I would be spurred to converse with them by, by writing, writing in, in response. I think that is a great selection for your desert island. Absolutely. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I'm working on a on an essay about, you know, after you finish a book, there's always things that you didn't get to or you had to cut out. So I'm working on the darkest of the dark lady, the the basically the uh the violent um tragic roles, um like Medea and English adaptations of the Medea model. And I think that Lady Macbeth is one. Victoria Corambona in a different way. So that's that's like the dark lady travels. And that's that's what I'm working on. I'm also working with the Chicago Shakespeare Company. I love saying that on a performance of Isabella Andrini's Lover's Debates, which is the book I co-translated with Julie Campbell and Eric Nicholson. So this is a diva who wrote and published her poetry and her, and her plays. And this is due to come out shortly from The Other Voice in Early Modern Europe. And this will help launch our book, which is coming out this year as well. It's a big year and it'll be fabulous to see professional actors and actresses bring our work to life. That is fascinating and so exciting for you. What a great year of stuff you have coming up. Thank you so much, Pamela Brown, for being here and talking us through the history of women on stage in Shakespeare's lifetime and sharing with us about your upcoming projects. This has been a fun conversation and I've really enjoyed having you here. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you so much, Cassidy, for what you do. Be sure to leave us a comment and rating on your favorite podcast platform to let other listeners know where they can learn something new about Shakespeare. Our show notes for today's episode contain more information on our guests and their research, as well as links to the resources recommended today that you can use to learn more about today's topic. This includes links to Pamela's books, as well as Engendering the Stage and other resources that she suggested. You can use the links in the show notes to go directly there. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 209. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP209. Our show is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash, and the audio engineering is done by Gary Mayholm. If you enjoy our show, please consider supporting our work by becoming a patron. Patrons power this show and allow us to keep it available free and without any commercials. To say thank you for supporting our work, we offer bonus history content to go along with our episodes, including woodcuts, portraits, and museum artifacts that coordinate with our show and let you see visually the things that we're talking about on the audio. 
Patrons also get a list of in-depth history research that goes into the making of today's show. Plus, if you join at the video library level, you can access video versions of our show, as well as documentary films, animated plays, virtual tours, and more. Explore all the benefits of being a patron of That Shakespeare Life and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.